We are starting our series tonight, What Does the Bible Say About Dot, Dot, Dot. So y'all um, submitted quite a few topics, like I said, and we will begin addressing those in two weeks because next Sunday we do not have youth. But for tonight, and the reason I wanted to go ahead and do this topic in particular, what is what does this Bible say about the gospel and sin? The reason being is because, number one, it's foundational to our understanding of the whole Bible. But number two, it's the one thing that I wanted you to have to think about for two weeks until we come back. So here's what I want to do. Uh, first, I want to make a deal with you. I will treat you like adults if you will listen like adults. Can you do that? All right, so what that means is that I am going to give you a lot of things. Some of those things will be challenging. Some of those things you may disagree with. But what I'm asking you to do is I'm asking you to consider them. I think if any of you came to me with anything, I would at least be willing to sit and listen to what you have to say. Tonight, I think that is especially important because we are talking about the one topic that the entire Bible was written for, and that is how we would be in a right relationship with God who created everything. So that's, essential, that's an essential understanding if we are to start anywhere. If we don't start there, if we don't get our relationship with God figured out before we do anything else, then right views don't matter. Wrong views don't matter. And we'll talk about why that's the case. But anyways, when I was in high school, my youth pastor, Ryan McKee, um, he called me into his office, and it was kind of weird because I had never been called into like a pastor's office before, and so it felt really like I was getting called to the principal's office. Now, here's the problem. When he called me into his office, I was like, oh, man, there's like 4,000 things that he's about to bring up. And so I get called in, and I'm like, uh, did my microphone break? Oh, so I get called in. Um, and McKee sits me down. I sit there, and he said, Tyler, um, you know, I've heard a few things, and I just need to ask you something. And my response was this. It's all true, McKee. <laughs> that's, that's literally what I said. I didn't even, he didn't even tell me what he was talking about. I just put my head down and said, it's all true. <laughs> I don't even know what I was confessing to. I just confessed to all of it. He could have said, the next thing he could have said was, I heard you murdered someone, and I would have been like, well, that, I didn't do that. But what he ended up confronting me with, I had, in fact, done, and it was, in fact, sin. What I want to tell you is that our conversation tonight about the gospel and about sin and about how to figure out what that is in our own lives, I have been there. I, I have sat on the other side of a pastor's sermon. I have sat on the other side of a pastor's desk. And I have been confronted with my sinfulness. And so I only say that because what we're talking about this evening is not like a youth sermon. This is an every human being sermon. The, the stuff we are talking about is extremely important. We're not just talking about some things we think, some opinions we have. We are talking about an understanding of the gospel and an understanding of sin. What I want for you is for you to desire, no matter what your views are right now on anything to do with the Bible, 
I want you to commit right now, and I want you to say a little prayer in your head that God would reveal to you in his word what is true. Even if that means I am wrong, you need to desire the truth of God's word so much that you would be willing to come to me and say you're wrong if I am really wrong. But if you are wrong, you also need to be willing to confess that you are wrong. Because what is at stake is not being right, being wrong, being able to win an argument. What is at stake is life and death. Y'all are young. I'm 31, I'm young, and you're way younger than I am. And what I'm telling you right now is that if you die right now, your understanding of the gospel and of sin will affect forever. These are huge matters. These are not just things that we can figure out someday. These are things we must figure out now. Now, Lord willing, we will have a long time to figure them out and flesh them out and to live them out. But your commitment tonight, right now, as an adult, being, a treated, being treated as an adult for this moment, as soon as we're done, you're students again. But for right now, you're adults. And I'm asking you to think deeply about these things. I'm not going to insult you and act like you are not smart or that you don't have life experience or that you haven't been through hard things. Y'all have had all of those. So you need to think. So I want to start with a question before we kind of dig in. What is your standard? And all of these things have to be asked honestly. If you're not going to ask them honestly, I would just honestly encourage you not to ask any questions of yourself at all. What is your standard for determining what is sin and what isn't? Right now in your head, what is your standard for determining what is sin and what isn't? And after you've asked that question, ask yourself the other question. Have you counted the cost of being wrong? Have you counted the cost of of being wrong. Because again, the implications are not just being right and being wrong. We're talking life and death. What I want you to realize, and I think a lot of people, I, maybe all of us, we, we would agree with what I'm about to say, but if we believe that God doesn't approve of sin, and I think everyone in general that's probably in this room at a Christian church, at a Bible-believing, gospel-preaching church, we would say, yes, the Lord does not like sin. Well, if we believe that God doesn't approve of sin, that He doesn't like sin, that sin has no relationship with Him, but we embrace sin, even on accident, even with good intentions, then what's at stake, again, is our life. And not just like your life right now through your middle school years or your high school years, not just your life as a, as a young mother, a young father, not just your life as a 40-year-old single person, not just your life as a grandma or grandpa, and not just your life in a hospital bed. 
your eternal life, your forever, your existence beyond your last earthly breath. That's what's at stake when we look at something like sin. All right. So that's why I want to come to God's Word. I want to let God speak, and I want to be confronted with what the Bible says for itself and to think about it deeply and to be honest and honestly assess everything and let the Word of God guide us into a right understanding. There are a lot of things happening in the world around you. There are a lot of voices in the world around you that are telling you what's cool, what's not cool, what's accepted, what's not accepted. There are a lot of competing, contradicting voices in the world. Go like this because you know that that's true. How are you supposed to figure out what voice is the right voice to listen to? If you've not asked yourself that question yet, ask the question. What I'm going to tell you is that the only voice that we can listen to, it's not my voice. It's the only one you have to listen to right now. But my hope is that we would let God's voice speak. So that's what we're going to do. So the first thing I want to do is in our, in our looking at what does the Bible say about gospel and sin, I want to quickly run through what isn't the gospel. Because that's really important. I think all of us would like, maybe most of you, 95, 98% of you, if I were to say, who believes the gospel, raise your hand. Well, number one, simply because of peer pressure, probably everyone raises their hand. But if we closed our eyes, turned the lights off, and I had night vision goggles and said, okay, who believes the gospel, raise your hand. I think probably 95 to 98% of you raise your hand. Well, that's fine if we actually understand what the gospel is. But if we're going to understand what the gospel is, we have to understand what the gospel is not. Because one of the great lies of the enemy is giving us half gospel, giving us three-quarter gospel, getting us just close enough to the real gospel that we are satisfied we find some protection, we find some safety, we still get to live and function in the world, we get to kind of do some of their stuff, but we're still gospel people. Well, let's break some of those things down. So what isn't the gospel? I have like 55,000 points. So let's start with point one. The first thing that the gospel isn't is that the gospel isn't just the good news that we receive. It's not just the good things that we get. The gospel is the revelation that we are separated from God and have been confined or consigned to death because of our sin. Do you understand that the gospel message is not just a message of, hey, come over here, come to Cross Point Youth, and we'll give you all good stuff, good pizza, cool games sometimes, depending if I'm leading them, they're usually subpar games, and I'm making up rules as we go. But by the way, we have some good things to tell you about the goodness of Jesus. Well, that's only half true because one of the reasons we have the gospel message is because Romans 6.23 says the wage of sin is death. The gospel is not just good things. The gospel is the message that you are, outside of Jesus, dead. 
Your sin has murdered you. And you are living a dead life for a dead existence if you don't trust in Jesus. If you don't realize the gravity of your sin. So that's the first thing. The gospel is not just the good news. It's also the news that we are dead in sin. Secondly, the gospel isn't something that can be claimed and yet not lived. The gospel is not just something that we can bring into our life and say, yeah, gospel person, and not live gospel lives. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is that if we claim to know the truth of the gospel, then we have to live the truth of the gospel. There's no middle ground here. And, and young people, what I'm telling you is that simply saying, I'm a gospel person, is not biblical if your life doesn't picture a gospel person. Now, you're going to struggle with sin for the rest of your life. But if you're just a gospel person living like the world, then you have no gospel. You have a half gospel. James 4.17 says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. If you claim to have knowledge of Jesus and his death for sin, and yet you don't live in light of that, then you're still in sin. You're still under the bondage of sin. Number three, the gospel isn't just the addition of salvation to your normal way of life. The gospel is not just something that you're like, yeah, yeah, church kid, right? Like, my parents believe the gospel, I believe the gospel, that's it. Now, I'm just going to continue to live the way that I've always lived. I'm a gospel person, I've got it, I'm good to go. Now, I'll just continue to do what I've done my whole life. Matthew 16, 24 and 25 says, and this is Jesus, he told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What Jesus is telling us is that if you claim the gospel, then your life is now a life that's defined by putting your sin to death. Right? Taking up the cross of Jesus, which is, by the way, where he died for the forgiveness of sin, doing something similar and dying to yourself every single day denying the things that you, you want and desire, the way you feel, denying all of those things if they are sinful. Right? There are times in my life where I have to say, no more donuts. Why? Not because I'm like borderline overweight, which is kind of somewhat true, but because something as simple and silly as a donut could take me from finding satisfaction and joy in a, in a sweet treat to becoming a glutton. Something as silly as a donut. But Jesus says, if, if you're my disciple, then your life is defined by taking up your cross. You are the type of person now who has been impacted by the gospel, so your job in life is to repudiate sin. Right? To, to kick the devil right in his mouth. 
So the gospel isn't just an addition to your life as you've always lived it. The gospel is a changed life. You're not the same person. And so I want to tell you right now, I'm going to be very honest with you, and I'm not sowing seeds of doubt or, or questioning your salvation at all, but what I'm telling you is that if you have claimed to trust in the gospel, that is Jesus dying on the cross for your sin, if you have repented of your sin and put your faith in him, and yet your life hasn't changed at all, then you have cause to question whether you understand the gospel and have believed it. Now, don't go home and lose sleep over that. Talk to me or talk to one of your small group leaders. Let them help you discern whether you are assured of your faith or confused by faith. Right? We want to have that conversation with you. But what I'm telling you is if your life looks exactly the same as it has always looked, I don't know that that's right but I know it's not good. Number four, the gospel is not a way of saying that everyone will be saved. So one of the things about the gospel is that we are tempted at times to say, well, since God is good, he must save everyone. There's no badness in God, only goodness. And so everyone's going to be saved in the end. Well, that's not the gospel message. The gospel message is not at all everyone will be saved simply because God sacrificed Jesus and God is simply a good God. Okay. All right, calm down. So the the gospel is not a way of saying that everyone's going to be saved, right? Just because you come into this room and we speak the gospel here, just because we communicate the gospel from God's word, we are never saying, oh yeah, and by the way, you're all saved because you're here under the gospel. Romans 10, 9 says, if you singular, confess with your singular mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The gospel is not a universal message of of being saved from hell. 
right? God's too good. He wouldn't send anyone to hell. The Bible says exactly the opposite. Because God is good, he must judge rightly. And if you are an unrepentant sinner, then his right judgment of you is that you would pay the cost of your sin, which we already talked about in Romans 6.23, is death. Right? This is a message that you as an individual must hear and you as an individual must believe. Your family cannot do that for you. Your youth group cannot do that for you. Your small group leader and certainly your youth pastor cannot do that for you. The message of the gospel is a message to you. I did these in letters, so point E, which maybe is number five, I'm not sure. I'm not good at math or the alphabet. But the gospel is not one of the many ways to God, right? So when I say that, I'm not saying only Christian people can be saved. Well, that's just true because if you're a follower of Christ, you're a Christian. It's not to say Muslims can't be saved. It's not to say Buddhists can't be saved. It is to say that they cannot be saved by their gods because their gods are not real, The only way to salvation is through Jesus Christ. He is the Son of the one true living God. He is God Himself in the flesh. So He tells us in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no religion on earth that will save you. But the gospel is a universal message to everyone. Whether they're Muslim or Buddhist, we are to proclaim the gospel to them. We are to reveal to them that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one true living God, has said that He is the only way. He is the only way to repair the relationship with the Creator of everything. Every other religion is a fake, false religion. And our desire is to share the gospel with them and to bring them into the truth. Number six. I'm just going to start making up numbers. The gospel isn't about our attempt to become a better person. So I think this is one of the things that we can often struggle with is thinking that, well, if I go to church, if I simply put in a good effort to be a church kid, then God will accept me then I will be a gospel person because God will see that I'm a gospel person because I go to church all the time and I listen and hear the gospel and I believe the gospel. Well, if we ever believe that is a part of how we get saved, then we are totally confused because the Bible tells us that none of us can earn the gospel. None of us are good enough or have enough good that God's like, yeah, I can work with that. there's enough there that I can kind of make that what I value, and and that'll get you into heaven. Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together by Christ. By grace you have been saved. Any gospel that includes you working your way to heaven is false. And I want you to understand that that's good news for all of us because guess what? None of us are righteous. None of us have any good that we can offer to God. 
If you were to die right now and get to the gates of heaven and God were to say, why should I let you in? If you said, well, there was an unpopular kid at school and I sat with him or her at lunch and I became him, his or her friend and I, I've just really tried to love my neighbors well and care for them and be a loving, kind, good person, God would look at you and say, that's not enough. And then he would probably ask you, have you lived a sinless life? And you would say, well, no, of course I haven't. And then he would say, well, what is the payment for your sin? What are you going to offer me for your sin? And if your answer is not Jesus Christ, then you, you don't get in. Because the gospel isn't simply about becoming a better person and doing good things and progressively better things as you get older. The truth of the gospel is that we are dead in our sin and that only Jesus can make us alive. Only the goodness and perfect life of Jesus will be the answer to the question of why can you come in. Point 50,000, I don't know what this is. Point G, I don't know what letter that, number that is in the alphabet. That's why I'm a pastor. <clears throat> the gospel isn't just our ticket out of hell. So what I mean by that is, of course, the gospel is the good news that we will live in eternity in heaven with God. And that means, naturally, we will not live in hell. But it's not just a, a ticket out of hell. That, that's not what the gospel brings us alone. So what, what I want you to understand is that the gospel is not just your way to avoid hell. It's also the means whereby you become a child of God. So, so what that means is, is it's way more than just getting to come into heaven. It means right now, if you have trusted in Jesus, if you have put your faith in him, you are a child of God. That means Jesus as the Son of God, all of the things he will receive, we are co-heirs with him. We receive the good things that have been reserved for Jesus. We jointly get to have those things. So what I want you to understand is, is, is the gospel isn't just like your ticket out of hell. It's God bringing you in close as a child. But why is that important? Ephesians 1.12 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Do you want to know one of the things that I've learned as a parent, like one of the main lessons? It has been the lesson of long-suffering love. That my children can do anything and nothing they do can make me love them any less. And what God is saying as the perfect father is he wants to bring us in as children. He wants to give us all of the rights and all of the protection of children. This is not just a get out of hell free card. This is becoming a child with all of the rights of being a child. He will provide for us. He will keep us safe. And most of all, when it's all said and done, he brings us home to our true home to live with our Father.
forever. And then the final thing, what the gospel isn't. And this one's really important. If you hear nothing else I say tonight, hear this. The gospel is not something we can use to distract people from our sin. The gospel is not something that we can use to distract people from our sin. Listen, the right words, the right attitudes, the right actions, you can use those things to fool your parents. You can use those things to fool me, to fool your small group leaders for a little while. Coming here and claiming all of the good Christian things will work for a little while. But you can never, ever, ever use them to fool God. Luke 12, 2 through 3 says, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and whatever you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. If you are here, if, if at least a part of the reason you are here is to give yourself the freedom to continue a life of sin, and this is just the thing that gets your parents off your back or, or stops the questioning from your parents, then you don't understand the gospel. The gospel is not just a blanket that you can throw over yourself so you can do your sin and then you take the blanket off. No one knew about it. No one sees. And for all we know, you're a good kid, a good gospel church kid. What I'm telling you is that I may not know that right now, but as you live your life and as you continue to live your life and as you grow up, it's going to become clear to me. But I want to tell you that right now, everything that's done in the dark, the Lord sees. You can convince me for a little while that your attendance here or even your acceptance of the gospel is real but if you are living in sin and you're just using this as some sort of distraction, I just have to tell you, you are in grave danger. You have tricked yourself, and you may have tricked us, but you have not tricked the Lord. All right, so what is sin? So what is sin? So that's what the gospel is not, with a little bit of what is the gospel thrown in. But now I want to look at what is sin. And listen, I know this is a lot, but I told you I was going to treat you like an adult. So what you have to do as an adult is you got to keep your eyes open, you got to listen, and you have to at least look like you're interested in what I'm saying. Listen, when I preach on Sunday mornings, I know that there are a lot of different people. Some of them, they do this. Amen. Some of them do this. Some of them do things like, <laughs> right, every now and again you get one of these. 
<laughs> I'm just joking. I've never, well, maybe I have. I don't know. Um, but what I'm saying is I understand that this is a lot of stuff. But I also want to tell you that there is no time to waste. There's no time to waste. Understanding the gospel and sin, they are the most important thing that you will either do or not do. And there is very little time to do these things. So what is sin? Well, I want to define sin by a few different categories, and then I want to give us uh, a scripture for really just a, a helpful understanding. But the way I would define sin to help us is, is one way is this. Sin is essentially any thought or action that is, is opposed to God. So anything that you do that is not biblical, and so not technically your understanding of the Bible, but what is actually true. Now, one of the things about being a human is we have to figure out what's true by what's in the Bible. And we're going to have success, and sometimes we will fail. But as we grow in communion with the Lord, as we spend time in prayer, as we pray that the Holy Spirit would illuminate our eyes, right? Because reading the Bible as a believer is not just being a smart person. It's being a Holy Spirit person, right? Not only looking at the Bible and trying to figure out what God would say, but asking that God in you through the Holy Spirit would reveal that. So that's why the standard of anything that is anti-God, anything that is anti-Bible, that is sin. Right? It's a rejection of who God is and what He has said to us about what we're supposed to do, about who He is, about what He accepts and what He doesn't accept. But another way to explain sin is the rejection of God in favor of self. The reason I say that is because in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, that's ex exactly what they did. They rejected God. They decided to serve themselves instead of trusting and serving God and His good plan for them. He gave them a clear command, and they said, no, that's not good for us. This is good for us. They served their own self instead of God, and it's sin. And then finally, it's the consequence of being born rebellious. Adam and Eve are your first mother and your first father. And because of their sin, we are all born into sin. And if you don't believe me, just come to my house. I have a six-month-old who already sins. He does. He does, Chelsea. <laughs> she doesn't really believe that biblically, but it is hard to say. He is cute and fat, so got a lot of things going for him. Um, but, but he sins. He's, he's a sinner. He, he does things that he is not supposed to do. And then, if you don't believe me then, I have an almost four-year-old who I think maybe has committed murder. I don't know. But what I'm telling you is his nightlife is a little sketchy. No one had to teach him how to sin. No one had to train him on the ways of sin. Right? I didn't have to entice him away from the ways of the Jedi into the ways of the Sith. He was just Sith. And how do we know that we are born sinners? Because you can't not sin. Do you want to know how I know? 
Because the test that you have this week that you haven't studied for, that you intend to cheat on, I'm going to challenge you right now, don't cheat on it. And there may be some of you who think, okay, well, yeah, I definitely won't do that now, but when the time comes, you may. I'm going to tell you to go home tonight and for the rest of this week, obey your parents perfectly. No backtalk, no, no speaking ill of them in your mind. None of you can do that. None of you. Or let's just go ahead and throw all the chips in. I, I want all of you this entire week to have zero bad thoughts about anything. Whatsoever. If you want to know why the Bible tells us that we are born into sin and it's a part of our nature, look at your life. This is a part of the reason that the gospel is good news. Because you can't stop sinning. Even when you come to the Lord, you will still struggle with sin. You will be tempted to sin, and at times you will sin. Maybe in major, big ways. Sin is just simply who we are. From the day we are born until the day we die, we are sinners. And you can either be a sinner in the hands of of a just God who will judge sin, or you can be a sinner in the hands of a kind, gracious, loving Father who gave His Son to die for you to pay the cost of your sin against Him. Either way, you are a sinner. Romans 3.23, For all, every single person, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The second thing, what is sin? Well, part of sin is that it destroys our relationship with our Creator. Sin destroys our relationship with our Creator. So a righteous, good, perfect, holy God, because we have to confess that if we are sinners, then for God to save us or for us to need to be saved, that must mean God is not a sinner. Right? You, you do understand that. Like, I couldn't be a lifeguard and save other people if I also didn't know how to swim, right? So the non-swimmers who are drowning and dying, they need a swimmer, right? So we're not saying, well, you know, God's not perfect. He must be, or we don't need saved. Or if we do, there's no one to save us. We are born sinners. God has existed eternally without sin, so our sin destroys the relationship that we once had as Adam and Eve with a perfect, holy God. So a righteous, good, sinless God, He does not live affectionately with an unrighteous people. Isaiah 59.2 says, Your iniquities, your sins, have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear you. What does our sin do? It cuts us off from God completely. He doesn't even hear us. If we have unrepentant sin, if we have not trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God doesn't even hear us. 
you may think, that's really extreme and really crazy. God is good. You're insane. Listen, you guys. I don't think that there could be a more arrogant thing to say than God can't do that. If you believe that God created everything and if you believe that he truly is good and sinless and that we have broken our relationship with him by sin, then anything he chooses to do with us is good. The next thing, sin makes us accountable to the judgment of God, right? So sin doesn't get overlooked, right? God doesn't just see sinners and say, well, you know, I tried to create this good thing and it was going to be good for them. It was going to be good for me. Whatever. I'm just going to let it go, right? It's kind of like people who get super excited about having like an ant display, and it's like, man, I love these ants. They're so cool. They make these tunnels. And they're excited for like e precisely 14 minutes and 30 seconds. And then all of a sudden they're like, yeah, whatever. It's no, whatever. If they die, they die. If it falls over, whatever. God did not view it like that. He, he didn't become sick of us. He didn't become tired with us just because we rebelled against him. We are still God's creation, made in his image. And he wants to see his act of creation through to the very end. And that happens in two ways. Either by the way of salvation or by the way of judgment. And both of those things are a good act by a good God, even if we can't in our little minds, mine being the smallest because I don't even know numbers and letters, even if we can't understand and grasp that. God is right to punish unrepentant, rebellious creatures. If you're writing things down, Mark 9, 43 through 48, I'm not going to read it because it's a very long passage. The next thing, the unavoidable cost of our sin is death. The unavoidable cost of our sin is death, right? For the wage of sin is death. So there are two options. Either you pay that cost yourself, or in God's grace, he pays the cost for you by his son, Jesus. So how do we know that God is infinitely better than we are? Because he judges sin, but he also judges it in a way that we wouldn't expect, and that's through the sacrifice of his son. Ephesians 1.7 says, In him we have redemption, that is, we have payment through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You understand the avoidable cost of your sin is death. And what the gospel tells us is that, yes, as a sinner, you are under the sentence of death, but the cross of Jesus is the offer of payment. That God, in His grace, has sent His Son to pay the price for you. He doesn't owe us that. 
If you think you deserve the gospel, then I don't think you really know yourself. We all sin. I was telling someone the other day, I have to ask my three-year-old potential serial killer, I don't know what he's done, but like, I have to ask him forgiveness when I sin against him in anger. Why? Because I have believed the gospel. I have believed that God is so gracious to me that he forgave my sin, that he paid for my sin with his son Jesus. He has shown me ultimate grace. And because I've received so much grace from God, sometimes I have to repent of my sin to a three-year-old. Child, what I just did was sin. I reacted in anger. And the Bible says that anger is murder. Forgive me, three-year-old. And he responds, yes, sir, daddy, I love you. We can't forget what our sin costs. And if you are a believer, your sin cost the Son of God. All right, I'm going to move very quickly. Sin tricks us into believing that what feels right must be right. One of the things that sin does is it tricks us into believing that what feels right must be right. Well, here's what I want to tell you. Even your own motives, even your own desires, those things have to be assessed by the Bible. Even the things in your life that you think are good and right, you must make sure that those things are not just good and right in your eyes, but good and right in the eyes of God himself. One of the tricks of sin in our life is to confuse us into thinking that any good thing that either we think or the world thinks is actually good. Galatians 5.16 says, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit. If you do that, you will not be tempted to give in to your own fleshly sinful desires. Well, how do you do that? Psalm 119, I, th I don't think it's verse 1, but Psalm 119, somewhere in the many, many verses in that psalm, it says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How are we to discern what sin is? How are we to look at our lives and put sin away and put in what is good? Well, the psalmist says, I, in order not to sin, hide your word in my heart. The Word of God becomes the very air I breathe. It, it becomes everything to me. And the more I go to it, the more I realize and see my sin, and the more I repudiate it. Listen, I want to tell you right now, and I don't mean this arrogantly, but I, I want to tell you something. If you think you are well-equipped to understand who God is, simply because you come to church, then you are mistaken. Your duty as someone who claims to believe in the gospel is not just to come to church, 
but to get into the Word of God yourself and hide God's Word in your heart so you can fight sin. If you don't know anything about the Word of God, then you are ill-equipped for the battle that you have to fight. And then unrepentant sin is the sure sentence of eternal death. And I think Jesus wants his disciples, he wants us to understand really, really clearly the gravity of sin. Matthew 5, 29, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Jesus takes so seriously sin that he is, he's using this as an illustration. Like it's, it's not like, hey, by the way, for real, I, I need you to take a knife and I need you to pry out your eyeball, right? Number one, extreme. Number two, really gross. But what Jesus is saying is that sin and the consequences of sin are so severe that you would be better off ripping out your eyeball than embracing sin. Why? Because your embrace of sin requires eternal death. You will be judged, you will be judged rightly, and you will pay with your life. All right, so what is the gospel? in one minute. What is the gospel? Well, we're not going to make this very difficult. I, I think it's really important to understand what the gospel isn't because I think we are all tempted and susceptible to believing weird things about Jesus and God and the Bible. A lot of those things come with living in the world. A lot of those come with just being a sinner. And so there are a lot of weird things we bring into the room but I don't want to make the gospel confusing and I don't want to make the gospel complicated. So here is the four things I want you to know to understand the gospel. They're God, man, Christ response. You need to burn this image into your head. This is the gospel. That a holy, perfect, righteous God created us in his image to live with him and worship him and bring glory to him forever. That's who God is. Desirer of being worshipped by his creatures. For his glory and for our oh-so-goodness. I mean, seriously, could you imagine living in Eden? It's like, oh, cool, there's a tiger. I'm going to play with it. Right? God creates this perfect thing, he puts it in place. Man, Adam and Eve, us, God creates everything perfect, he creates us for himself, but we sin and we rejected the commands of God in favor of serving ourselves. And we broke the relationship, we broke the access that God created us for and desired for us. So when Adam and Eve sinned, do you remember what happened? What was the, like, the, the big physical consequence? Like what was the big major thing that he did with them geographically? 
he sent them away. Their sin had separated them from walking, talking, and communing with God. Eden was the place where God lived. And because of their sin, Adam and Eve got sent away. So God, in his perfect holiness, creates this good thing and man sins. And then they are separated from God. They are cast away. But Christ... In grace, God gave Jesus to fill this separation, to bring us back to God and to restore the relationship and to restore our worship of Him. And just like in Eden, do you remember one of the things when they were naked? Do you remember one of the things that freaked them out? They were naked, I just told you. What did God do? It's not a trick question. It's just a basic question, real question. What did God do? You have the masks on. You got to like scream it. That's right. He put clothes on them. Right? He, he killed an animal. He shed blood. And he literally covered them. Well, that's exactly what God is doing for us in Jesus. He is bringing us back to him under the cover of the blood of Jesus. Though we are still sinners, we are covered by the blood of Jesus. We are covered by his sacrifice. We can be brought back into fellowship in, with him, into relationship with him, because we have the cover of Jesus. He's been sacrificed. His blood has been shed. We are brought back. And Jesus died. He conquered death, and he rose again. And then finally, the response. Because that's not just true for you because you're in this room. Right? The God-man Christ response is not just your life simply because you're here. The response is this. The story of the Bible, that God created us for himself, we rebelled, and then he gave us Jesus as a way back to him. The Bible, that story, it's an invitation to see that we are sinners in need of a Savior and that God has provided the means of salvation in Jesus. And all that God requires of us is to repent of our sin and to trust in Jesus. If we do this, then our death is paid for by Jesus and his resurrection, his conquering of the dead is our assurance that we will raise from the dead and live with him forever too. All right, so what I want to do is I want you to go to your small groups and it's, all, it's like six till eight, but just take as much time as you need to in terms of until parents get mad. But if you have any questions, come see us. Let me pray for us real quick, and then you can go. Father God, thank you so much for this evening. Lord, I know that this is a lot. I know that this is just, just a, a flood, a fire hydrant of information. But Lord, this is the gospel. I pray that you would make it effective. I pray that you would, even despite my... Lord, just inabilities and inadequacies, that you would use your word, that you would use the verses that we read to bring us, to draw us to yourself, that we would see that we are sinners in need of a Savior, and to see that you have freely given Jesus, that we might trust in him. Lord, help us to understand sin rightly. Help us to understand the gospel rightly, not just to be right, but that we might order our lives right, that we might be seen as righteous in your eyes. And Father, I pray for all of these students 
Lord, that they would think deeply and that they would think long about these things. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.